Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble, until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Those are verses 12 to 15 of Psalm 94, which along with Psalm 95 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, November the 15th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it. We are continuing our look at the book of Habakkuk. Today we're in chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. Um, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, 1 to 10, and in uh, James' Epistle, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. So I forgot yesterday to give you any of the background on Habakkuk, so I'll get it today. So Habakkuk, we believe, is he's just he's either overlapping slightly with uh, prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah, who saw the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. Um, we believe that he's a little before that. He's in Jerusalem, and he's speaking specifically against the rise of the Babylonians, the Chaldean Empire. And so he sees their wickedness, sees them rising up on the scene, and sees what that will probably mean for his own people. And the Lord shows him these things. So he's prophesying about what he sees, and that's why he says, I'm going to stand on the wall and watch, because I don't understand why you're allowing this. And so that's the... Uh, the setting for Habakkuk's prophecy. He, he, he doesn't understand the rise of what he sees, along with Jonah, obviously, as an evil empire. Um, and it's left then for Jeremiah and Isaiah, for instance, to see the truth, and that is that God's people needed to be judged, and, and God will use these wicked and evil people in order to accomplish that. What he doesn't see then is what happens during the exile in Babylon. He doesn't see the rise of prophets like Daniel and the witnesses that will that, that will become, and ultimately that witness will lead to the wise men coming at the birth of Jesus. So, God brought good out of all this, but but Habakkuk is deeply concerned about this Babylonian empire, and, and it's all he can do to stay rooted in God, to be rooted in the strength of Yahweh, and to know and have faith that all will be well, because God has promised that it will. So here he says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigayanoth. And we don't know anything, honestly, about Habakkuk at all. The name Habakkuk appears only here. I mean, nowhere in antiquity. There, there are no other people that anybody runs across in uh, archaeology named Habakkuk. And it doesn't mean anything as far as it's, it's the etymology of the name doesn't tell us anything at all about who he is, who his family is, or anything. So anyway, this is his, pr- his prayer. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So he sees, he's remembering the deeds of God and the the powerful deeds that he has done for his people. And he's saying, stir that up now. You know, he, he doesn't want to see what he believes is going to happen. He doesn't want to see the Babylonians come. And he's, he's saying, in your wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Salah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. 
Before him, pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. So he's, he, he's remembering Israelite history here. What he's remembering is it begins at creation and that all things, all of creation continues to obey him and to do as he wills it to do. So it's it's he's he's remembering the power of God, because he and that's one of the things that we always need to be able to do is, is to remember, to remember what God has done, to remember what He's done in in the Bible, to remember what He's done through church history, what He's done down through the march of history itself, whether it's church history or not, but to know that ultimately He's sovereign over all things, and that is the comforting doctrine of the sovereignty of God is to remember that that all things obey him ultimately so he says i saw the sense tents of cushion in affliction the tent the curtains of the land of midian did tremble these are the the nations that were conquered by the israelites as they went to the promised land was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on horses on your chariot of salvation? And so the, the rivers would be the Nile, for instance, and the sea would be like the Dead Sea, or not the Dead Sea, the Red Sea that he parted and used as a, as a part of his creation in order to, to allow the Israelites to go through and to ruin Pharaoh and his army, or the Jordan River that rolls back when they come into the land in the time of Joshua. <clears throat> you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains. You saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. So th- this is a, a making, it's, it's doing two things, really. It, it's, it's making, it's personifying everything. So the, the, the rivers, the mountains, the seas, God himself, all these things, he, he says that they stand at your disposal and they do your will. You are the God of all creation, and, and creation trembles before you. If you read Psalm 19, you'll see many of these same ideas. You'll see them throughout all the prophets. But, but ultimately what he's saying is, is that all creation stands before you and does your bidding. And, and sometimes these quote, inanimate objects, understand and obey better than, well, animate things like, well, human beings, for instance. And so he's, he's speaking of those things. <clears throat> the sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. In other words, in the past, Lord, you've gone out to protect your people and to do for your people what they could obviously not have done for themselves, that it's always required you to show up, be big, and, and be the one to, to rout the enemy. We can't, we've can't. we never been able to stand before our enemies on a one-for-one basis. There was the time of David when we had some military strength, but the reality is, he says, that, that we've always needed you to fight our battles for us that you have always been our strength. The reason that we, we are who we are, even existing to the day, is because of you. He says, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. 
Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness eats into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. In other words, I'm standing here in fear of these Babylonians, but I know who you are. And I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. So no matter what happens, I know that ultimately we're your covenant people. And that we belong to you. I don't know the future. I just know that it's not going to be good. But I believe that ultimately God wins. And that's exactly the attitude we as Christians need to take in all things. And that should quiet us, even when we have fear. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, in, in, in spite of all of that, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And that is to be our attitude. You know, unfortunately, I've had to learn how to do that. It doesn't come naturally. It, it, it doesn't come naturally for me, and I don't think it comes naturally for anybody to say that no matter how bad things get, and they can get really bad, is what Habakkuk is saying, no matter how bad it gets, I'm going to continue to rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation, even when there's nothing to rejoice in or to take joy in. I'm going to continue to do it because I'm going to take it in Him, because I know Him, and I believe Him, and I believe in Him, and I love Him, because He loves me, and He chose me as his own. And it's a powerful thing. And, and it's the way that we need to speak. You know, we need to be good at that. As Christians, we need to be really good at that. And it's not easy to be good at that, because what it means is you've seen some trouble. You've seen some difficulty in your life. Nobody comes to that naturally. It, it is not normal at all. You know, I, I've been through so much stuff that it's not even easy now, but I'm amazed. my reaction to things now versus what it would have been even five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever it is. It's just amazing. And and it's all God's work. It has nothing to do with me. I promise it has nothing to do with John. Um, I wouldn't pray that you'd be in this place. I'd pray that you get it by gift rather than through the difficulties. But it and Jesus speaks into these kinds of issues, and so does James. He says, he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. I mean, you live in that kind of a world, but woe to the one through whom they come. Now, is he speaking here about Satan, or is he speaking about other people? And I believe the answer is yes. <laughs> so he said, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. In other words, that death is nothing compared to what happens if you lead little ones into sin. And we had a program within the uh, denomination I was in called Avoiding the Millstone, and it was exactly designed for that. Everybody that worked with children had to take it. And, and, and you know, I, I'm glad that, that he says things like it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to sin, because that's exactly how I feel about it. Anybody who, who does things with children, I, I just can't understand that. And so it's not wrong for Christians today to look at the, the attempts that are being made to groom children into alternative sexualities and, and um, doubting and questioning their own creation. That's no different 
in my mind. And the doctors who do these things, and that's no different either. That's no different. And so I think this is a serious issue, and I'm glad to, whenever I come across this passage, he says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him, which is exactly what he says in Matthew 18, um, is that when your brother sins against you, you're supposed to confront that sin. If, if a wicked man sins against you, which is from the Beatitude, from the Sermon on the Mount, then you're, that's when you turn your other cheek. But when your brother sins, you confront it and you rebuke that. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You might not want to hang out with him the next day, but you know that day you've got to, if he repents, then you've got to forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Why would that be? That's a very strange thing. You know, I, I, it, it sounds a whole lot like some of the stuff that was in Habakkuk, though. It sounds like what Jesus is saying is, is that, that you have that kind of authority given to you. Now, it, does that mean that you, you can look at a mulberry tree? I don't know where you'd find one, but, but if you saw a mulberry tree and say, hey, be uprooted and planted in the sea, would that happen? Well, if it fit with God's will, yeah, but I can't imagine that that would be God's will. It's not a parlor trick, is what I'm saying. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come in at once and recline at the table? No, no, no. Won't he rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you'll eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say we're unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And that's what I was trying to get across when I was saying, you know, it, people were saying, wow, I'm just amazed at your faith because of, you know, the ability to, to, to kind of the way that we dealt with Will's death and, and my ability to preach at the funeral. And, and, and absolutely, that's my answer is, I, hey, <clears throat> I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done what was my duty, I, which was to proclaim him, right? I mean, it doesn't mean that we don't hurt. That doesn't mean that, that we don't grieve and all that kind of stuff. But, but the reality is we know he's with the Lord, and, and that's a work of God. And the fact that he's with God and that's a work of God causes me to, well, praise him because he's where I want to be. It, it, it doesn't make it easy, like I said, but, but when you have walked with him for a while and, you, and he's proven himself in difficulties, then, then it's a whole different ballgame, a whole different ballgame. So anyway, in the James passage, now this is the hard part because this hurts, right? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And, and I really, that's something that I take more seriously than anything else in my life. I'll joke around about everything else, but the reality is, is, is that when I come to sit down in front of the microphone and do what I'm doing now or preach in a sermon at, the, at a funeral or a wedding or a, a church service or whatever, I take that as a very serious time. I never want to get anything wrong. I mean, I never want to get anything wrong. I don't want to mislead anybody. I don't, I don't want anybody to, to hear me say something and, and go off in the wrong direction because of what they heard me say. I, I want to always be careful with the Word of God. He says, we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If you don't stumble in what you say, well, I may not stumble in the pulpit over what I say, but it would be best, let's say, if I just sat in front of the microphone and had that same respect for every word that comes out of my mouth. <clears throat> he says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They're large and driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. 
So also the tongue is a small member, but it boasts of great things. Yeah, you know, I've certainly sat around with way too many people who who boast. You know, I have nothing to boast in except him. Nothing I've ever done could I boast in apart from him. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the whole course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So James is making that same comparison when he looks at the summary of the law, that we're to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And why do we love our neighbor as, as ourselves? Because they're created in the image of God. So it's an extension of the commandment to love God is loving your neighbor who's created in the image of God. So we love God by loving the neighbor. And, and so what James says is, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. I don't know about you, but I have to hold up my hand there and say guilty is charged. Ooh, you know, I, I don't like everybody. Let's just be clear and honest about that. And what I need to do, though, is never open my mouth about that. Right. I need to, to ask God to help me to love my neighbor. Because just because I go out of my way for you and help you and do the things that, that are required of me to do for my neighbor doesn't necessarily mean that I love you. It just means I'm sucking it up and doing what I need to do. I need actually to love you. I need to love you. Because it's, sometimes it's actually easier to love by doing something for somebody. Because then you can feel good about yourself. <laughs> which is not the goal, <laughs> not the goal at all. But, but it, it's something that, that I, I'm positive that I can confess this with the, with the straightforward knowledge that you're guilty too. We all are. <clears throat> so he goes on to say, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. I mean, we do. We need to. We we need to actively make the effort not to gossip, not to say bad things about other people. We we actively need to make that effort. It, it's the the worst thing that that most non Christians say about us is that we're hypocrites. I've heard you say this, that, and the other thing. I've heard you know you don't really love one another. They're right. And we need to be better. And, and I'm not fussing at you. I'm fussing at me. <laughs>